You ready? Uh, go on. Good. <laughs> Which one are we singing? I, I was just thinking of Good King. No. Jingle bells. <laughs> Dingle bells? That's not a thing. Jingle bells is Jingle. a song. I thought you said dingle. Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? With me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a brand new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. I have been looking forward to this moment so much because today I get to do one of my absolute favourite things, have big conversations with amazing people. So why uncomfortable? Well, quite simply, I feel we don't have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. And let's be frank, you don't learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. Before I ventured out and started my own thing, I was lucky enough to lead a global community of marketeers. And when I took the top job, I honestly felt as an industry, we were not addressing the topics that truly matter. So through feeling brave myself and massively vulnerable, we started an agenda to address the things that are considered taboos, but in my opinion, really shouldn't be. From our mental health, to race, to topics that can hold us back, like that old and familiar imposter syndrome. This snowballed into something bigger than I ever imagined, a global conversation where together we got uncomfortable about the important stuff. Honestly, creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. I truly believe that powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. And I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face. I don't think we get uncomfortable enough. So when Richard and the team at Fresh Air approached me to make a podcast, I said I would love to as long as we can get uncomfortable, which is where the irony kicks in, as this whole process has made me uncomfortable and then some. Quite frankly, I am learning a whole new and unfamiliar world, which, yes, has taken me totally outside my comfort zone. But I am here today. I am beyond excited to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is my wonderful friend, Jazz Amporfar. Jazz is quite simply an unstoppable, and in my opinion, irresistible force. Often referred to as the resilience ninja, Jazz has travelled the world advising governments and educators, and through her keynote speeches, she inspires and motivates thousands every year into action. I think that's millions, actually. Perhaps most notably through her record-breaking TED Talk that has had over 100,000 views and still growing. Jazz, in her words, is a self-confessed reality TV addict. From featuring on Blind Date some 30 years ago, to her now infamous firing (laughs) on The Apprentice, both of which I know we're going to cover in this conversation. As a former teacher and now keynote speaker, TV presenter, author, sometimes stand-up comedian, and her most important role, mum to three gorgeous kids. 
Jazz's authentic honesty and humour has a positive impact in everything she does. And then some. Welcome, Jazz. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to sit here with you and hear you say good things about me. I often say good things that about you. That you do, actually. And yeah, you do. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jazz, are you sitting uncomfortably? Suitably so, I think. And I don't, I don't often feel uncomfortable. But yeah, there's a, there's a feeling of trepidation um, delving into honesty with you and the potential billions of people listening. So yeah, I am uncomfortable. Does the chair feel a bit prickly? The chair's fine, but I, I, I like being uncomfortable. I mean, if I'm, too, if I'm comfortable, I know I can't grow. So I'll do things like little jazz hacks to make me, to put me on the back foot. So like I'll do something new when I'm on stage because I don't know if it's going to work or not. I'm talking about, you know, being brave. So I do stuff where I have to be brave. So I'm, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm good with it. I'm good with I love it. that. I love that. A couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to be right by your side when you were awarded the top prize, <laughs> the top prize at the Speaker Awards, I might add, um, Best Speaker of the Year, no less. This yeah. is after you got live gig, um, <laughs> etc. And I captured that now infamous shot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> of you in utter disbelief, which I think yeah. speaks volumes for your humility and loveliness it was wonderful and then you got up on stage and you said oh, I don't know what to say before delivering <laughs> literally I would say an Oscar worthy speech oh, um, where amongst me. other things you said we are only as powerful as the stories you tell so Jazz what's your story it starts actually at that moment because that photo you captured is more than me being surprised and also not listening to the announcements and not realizing my name was called out in that moment, the reason I love that photo is in that moment, what was going through my head is from foster care to speaker of the year. From it was, it's impossible made possible. And and the look is me thinking this cannot be happening because if this is happening, then we all need to review what is actually possible in our lives, and it is happening. So we do all have to review that. So yeah, so my story is as born a poor black child. <laughs> Which I hate, but it is true. To be, although I'm caramel top, not black. But yeah, I, I do, I do hate that as being Q's paint chart. I match myself up for accuracy. Um, what about Farron Ball? A Farron, no, Farron Ball. I, I aspire to be a colour on the Farron Ball paint chart. Being Q's my level for now. But uh, so no, I was born um, in 1970 when it wasn't cool to have a little brown baby, and my all my family were white. My mum, my biological mum. Didn't know she was pregnant, so I was taken to hospital for appendicitis. And then, ta-da! And, uh, you know, that caused a stir in the family, in the neighbourhood, in every place. Um, and I grew up with my biological mum and my grandma, but I didn't know my mum was my mum. She wasn't there very often. She was out a lot. Um, so my grandma was kind of my parent. And it wasn't until when I was six, my granddad died of cancer, and he was he was my everything. You know, my nan was like... Um, she would cook and she would be there for you. But my, my granddad had fought in the war and used to tell a story and te talk about bravery and talk about um, your responsibility to each other and, and just tell us stories. And he, he passed away. And my mum must have been pregnant with the third of her children because she'd had me and my brother Paul. And my nan was like, you, you've, I can't, because she was looking after us. She was basically taking care of us. And she was like, I can't. So we moved out. And that's when I found out she was my mum. When my nan said, you're going to your mum's wedding, I'm like, uh, the where with the what now? That, and, and I remember panicking at six. I remember thinking, she is not a safe adult. This is not good. This is not good. And we were dropped off at the wedding reception. It, me and Paul, it turned into a fight. And that night we were chased up the road um, trying to get away from the police. 
and ended up in a brothel that belonged to my new stepdad's brother. And that's where we, I say lived, that's where we stayed for the first kind of couple of months. And we were on and off homeless and then in a squat. It, it was, you know, that it, it was awful and it was normal. It was just what happened. And while we were there, my mum and dad had lots of other kids and I was basically a I, I don't know. I People talk about young carer and that makes me uncomfortable because I wasn't a young carer. I was a slave. I was someone who was tortured, abused, beaten um, physically, mentally, sexually by my parents. And my responsibility was to be there for my brothers and look after them. And actually, I like that because that made me useful, which meant they couldn't hurt me as much as they wanted to because they needed me. So my worth became buried in if I do stuff, I will be useful and I will be allowed to stick around. And um, that kind of, you know, that went on. That went on like that. I just want to give you a hug. It's funny because, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't talk about anything that I haven't processed. So there are massive things that I have done the work. You don't get to be this awesome by sitting on the sofa crossing your fingers. You do the work. And you are I, awesome. I, I know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but I, I tell this story because I know so many people who I work with at CEO and exec level who are carrying stolen shame from someone else and letting it dictate what they do next. And that's why I talk, because people need to know there's a next and it's not a next where you're in prison. You, you talk about, for, for you, the change came when you decided to stop comparing your backstage with everyone else's front stage. Yeah, yeah. It, there was always this sense of injustice. I always felt things were unfair. And I ran away at 11. We'd been in and out of foster care. I ran away when I realised that how you got pregnant is what my stepdad was doing to me. And I was terrified, so I ran. In and out of foster care again, on the streets, with my grandma, off school, at school, <laughs> making relationships with adults that really saved me, you know, and, and navigated the chaos I was in. But there was always this feeling of unfairness. It's, it's not fair. It's not fair. I was wrong. So I was always in the wrong. I was the wrong type of different for everybody. And I remember this feeling of not being good enough. It's like a theme tune. I'm not good enough. And people like me don't do things like this. You know, I'm brown, working class, foster care kid, a girl. For crying out loud, sit down and shut up. So there's this, that kind of drove it. And then I realised that a lot of the time I was measuring myself my backstage against everyone else's front stage. And I did this for life. The last time I remember it being really clear that was when it kind of stopped. It was when I'd had my third child and I was sat on the computer. I was addicted to American mommy bloggers. Like, you know, they're all perfect with their perfect hair and they've got eight kids and they make all their clothes and they live in a house on a lake that they built themselves and their husband's away doing something heroic. You know, oh, and, and I used to like just watch them like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then I was watching this one woman and I'm sitting in the chair. She's got a perfect life. And I'm sitting in my dressing gown. It's half past two in the afternoon and I've got egg yolk down my boob. And I'm listening to my kids killing each other in the background. And I remember thinking, my life's different to yours. I'll never be you. I'm not good enough. And then I'm like, hold on a minute. This life is absolutely awesome from where I was and where I am. This life is incredible. Why am I measuring it against someone? I don't know. She might be crying herself to bed every night because her nail broke. I don't know. So I, I'm like, this is incredible. Why am I... Why am I comparing? Comparisonitis. I know we've talked about this before. Mm. It, it steals joy. It steals mm. the opportunity for joy. So I thought, you know what? No more. I'll write my own story, thanks. Pen's in my hand. And now, interesting what I do, since I started doing it, I have people saying, I want to be like you. I'm like, so do the work. Do the work. Change the story. I do love that. And you have rewritten your story. And look at what you've gone on to achieve. I mean, it's 
It's bloody amazing. I can't get my head around it. And for a long time, I didn't talk about my... Pa- <laughs> like, when I was at uni, right, I started uni and I was... And that was a miracle. I, You know, I pretended to be Scottish to get into university. Or do your Scottish accent. No, because it's really bad. Oh, and everyone's Scottish, like, who... So, yeah. To, my, I, my dad's I, Scottish. He can judge Oh, no. It. Okay, on. okay. Well, I want to get adopted by someone Scottish. So, okay. I, this is really difficult. If you... I got two E's and an N, which stands for nearly an A-level... I needed three C's, didn't get it. So I phoned a university and I realised when I said I got two E's, she thought I said two A's. So I said, oh, my name's Jazz, I got two E's. And she said, two A's, that's amazing. Come for an interview. <laughs> that is wasn't that, bad. Is that yes? <laughs> adopt me, Scotland. <laughs> yeah. So I, so Pete, I went Peter for an interview. Peter my dad is going to adopt you based on that. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll be sisters. Perfect. So that, and that is how I got to uni. And then, but at uni, I was... Um, you know, I was homeless. I didn't have anywhere to live. So I'd come out of foster care. I was in a community house. You didn't get housing benefit if you were a student at that time. So I I was too embarrassed to tell anyone that I... Like, I told people I had a brother called Tarquin because I thought that made me... Like, my greatest dream would be one day I could be considered acceptable. Not be accepted. Might as well wish to be a swordfish. But I could fool <laughs> enough people to be considered acceptable. And that was my highest dream. So I, I lied. I told people, oh, I'll stay with you. And then my parents are taking me skiing. And I was actually just sofa surfing because I spent a night on the streets and it was hideous. So I, I had nowhere to go. So the, the whole, but it, for me, it was, if I can get this degree, if I can be a teacher, that is impossible. Like 6% of foster care kids go to university in this country. Not all of them finish because it is impossible once you get there. But 6% go. I went and I did a degree and I finished it and I, I smashed it. So th- there's this, and I didn't do it on my own. I did it through like people standing with me, doing withness, standing in the shoulder to shoulder in the chaotic fire that was my life the whole time. And it cost me a lot. It cost me, it cost me, cost me my community, really. It cost me my community of kind of working class disadvantage air quotes because I hate that word when you're not going to discuss my community you're talking about disadvantage but it cost me that because people like us don't do things like what you're doing so either stop doing it do you know what I mean when you say it cost you your community mm. people turn their back on you is that is that what you mean it, it's a it's a tricky one because there's something around being united in oppression when you when no one's got anything and you're all Certainly from a family point of view, you know, everybody is poor but proud. It, that that was my working class experience with my nan. But when I moved away, we were like, you know, feral kids. And, you know, when I ran away at 11, I, I was on the streets for three days. You know, it was, that was kind of a regular thing for kids to do. So specifically, it's my it's my brothers and my sister. When I went to uni, it was like we were in a pit. And this pit is the sides are covered in mud and crap and I have somehow clawed my way to the top and I'm standing at the top looking at them covered in crap and and they're reaching their hands up and I'm filled with joy because I'm like this is it this is how we rewrite our story and I reach down to help them and they are not trying to get out they want me to come back because people like us don't do things like that and I'm getting emotional about it because people are so wedded to their identity and, 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 and the belonging that that brings the thought of changing their identity is so painful and so hard that a lot of people don't do it so I'm the weird one and I'm the snob who thinks she's better than she is because I went to uni and I became a teacher. So I, I lost that. Now, you know, my, my second brother took a heroin overdose and died and it brought us back together and we've worked through stuff and we have a relationship, but it's it's been stolen. Hard. It's been stolen. Yeah. Sorry about getting emotional. I didn't... It, 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 it's Never apologise. No, and, and I'm also, not sorry. You've taught me that. Yeah, I apologize. have. Um, I'm not sorry at all. You I'm shouldn't not be. Sorry. You shouldn't be. And the fact that, you know, you, you said at the beginning, you know, you made the, the impossible possible. And that's yeah. essentially 
essentially what you did and you went on to be a, a teacher. Mm. I, d I don't think it's me. I d well, I, I did the work, but there was, I always talk this, everyday heroes is what I talk about, that there were five everyday heroes who did the tiniest things that made the biggest difference. Uh, one of them, you know, Mr. Simpson, my geography teacher, he used to be in the late corridor at school. And as I'd come in late every day, he'd look at me and go, all right. And I'd be like, what are you talking to me for, you pervert? Step off. You know, because I, I couldn't cope with kindness, you know. But when someone does that every day for five years, just greets you. The only person to smile at me was him. He just looks at you like you're human. It melts the ice around your heart. It changes how you feel about yourself. It, that belonging creates a belief in yourself that then goes on to change your behaviour. And so often what we want to do is you sort your behaviour out first and believe in our creed and then you can belong. Well, gangs don't ask that. Gangs will let you belong as soon as you beat someone up. So you've got to make it easy and remove the barriers or why should I try? So I, I kind of feel like these individuals paved a way where there wasn't a way. And and <laughs> that that's how I, I made it through. I, what I did is I trusted people even though I've been let down several times. That was the big thing that I did. And, and when I think about like my book, I write letters to my younger self. And what I write to my eight-year-old self is tell someone what's happening at home they're going to look too busy. They're going to tell you, I've got to do this first, but persevere. Tell someone, they're going to, they're not going to believe you, but you've got to keep, t tell someone. And it's like, why am I giving this advice to an eight-year-old? Shouldn't it be that people are able to stand with each other and meet people where they are rather than waiting for people to be ready and acceptable before they listen to them? Well, it's like you always say, you know, it's about being your, your full fat self. And yes. using the word fat, I don't mean that in any no, other no, way. No, no, full fat. Like full, full fat, fat self. self. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, which I love. I always talk about, you know, be you so others can be them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And you've been instrumental, actually, in some of the some of the journeys because there's so much about our relationship that is on paper it just it it shouldn't work we're from different worlds we do different things it is that thing all the time of you know you the famous story oh it's famous because I tell it all the time <laughs> of you accosting me in a lift in Rome accosting you excuse Again. me first of all first of all I said will you come to Rome with me and you said <laughs> no. what did I say no my life's different to yours I don't come to Rome for dinner and then funnily and, enough and, uh, what happened <laughs> So I was invited to speak at the conference and then I flew to Rome and had dinner with you. By the way, I didn't accost you. We were on our way back to our rooms after that <laughs> dinner that I got you to in Rome. Well, I tell the story differently. But, uh, but no, it was what, what I mean by cost is that you literally like interrupted a mindset that I'd had for so long and you made it so obvious that I couldn't have it anymore and I didn't know what I... It's like I taught someone, I taught an adult to read because I used to do literacy and she said to me, it's, I don't know who I am anymore. I used to be dyslexic Bren and now I'm not. And I don't know who I am. So it was like, it was like that moment. So I said, I, go, I remember going up, we'd had dinner, everything's good. I'm speaking the next day. We're in this swanky hotel. My room overlooks the Vatican for crying out loud. I have a button to do the curtains. I'm like, this is not my life. And I'm going back up to the room and there's this moment where everyone else gets out of the lift. And I remember grabbing you in like pure panic and fear and going, Jem, I can't do this. I have nothing to offer. I don't know what I'm going to say tomorrow. Oh my God, I'm freaking out. My heart is pumping and I'm and you just turned to me and said there are two pots one is evidence and data the other is your own thoughts and feelings which one is more true and I'm like it's the thoughts it's like no it's the evidence and data pot that and sometimes you gotta go with fact over feeling and I was like oh my gosh what what and I went back to my room like I am struggling really hard to have imposter syndrome right now and it usually comes so naturally to me. And it literally, that's why when I tell that story in keynotes, I talk about the prophetess Gemma Greek because 
that you moment do, was yeah i do the whole exercise with people i do the whole exercise with people. It, it was it was it was a kind kick up the bottom it really was I, I firmly believe in those two pots and, and um, I do talk about them quite a lot and people always think that they're my pots but I have to say they were Steve Radcliffe's pots who's the most amazing guy who when I was struggling once and he said to me and your evidence pot grows every day yeah, yeah. just like right now our evidence pot yes, is growing yeah. and when we have those doubts and feelings that we are always going to have it it helps you quieten them yes turn the volume down turn the volume don't get down. rid of them altogether just turn um, the volume down yeah, yeah. and i visualize the pots as well and one's got a weed that's got oh, weeds around and the like other that. one's got flowers or maybe a cactus the cactus is the evidence oh. pot we have a cactus in front of us don't <laughs> you, we you can't, yeah and you can't kill cacti you can't you, it's really hard to destroy cacti yes yeah so that's the evidence is there so given this podcast is about getting uncomfortable what makes you uncomfortable, Jazz? Uh, dolphins. <laughs> no, they do. They know more than they're letting on. Um, they they do. I've met a dolphin, right? And it looked at me in a way that made me think I shouldn't be there. So I'm just putting it out there. Everyone thinks they're cute, but dolphins make me uncomfortable. Um, and, and the thing that makes me uncomfortable the most, I don't even like talking about, which is why I'm doing this now. The whole brown thing, the whole race thing, that makes me really uncomfortable. And, and you talked to me about previously when we were talking about this conversation, you mentioned, which really stuck out to me, actually, adjacent white privilege. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm brown, right? I don't Caramel talk. Caramel talk, according, because, and the reason I'm that is on those, those forms where it used to be white, black, Asian, other, which annoyed me because it wasn't alphabetical. And if you're white, you just tick the box and move on. White, black, Asian, other. Clearly, I'm near none of those. So other, and then it says, please specify. And I'm like, what do you want to know? Yeah, like, seriously. what do you want to know? Yeah. Some random guy attacked my mum. I'm the product. No one knows who he is. She's white. I mean, I'm not going to tell you all that. This is for a job at McDonald's, for crying out loud. <laughs> you don't need all that history. Just what do you what do you actually want to know? What could I? So I, I match myself up with a paint chart and B&Q. And when it says black, white, other, I put other, caramel top, please specify, B&Q paint shop and thanks to moisturiser, <laughs> silk not matte. Yes, that is, and that is a lot of specification. So I, I think that's enough. So, but it's, it's, so I, there's the whole thing around feeling like being brown, being, having been born working class and now living a middle class life, like it couscous and everything, right? Proper middle class. So, but I span <laughs> both. couscous middle class. It, oh, you don't have it. You didn't have it on the council so I can tell you that. But <laughs> it's, it's newfangled, that's for sure. But, uh, but I, I live, like I have very strong community working class roots that, and I work, I, I have friends who are perhaps not always on the right side of the law, but it's a very kind of that area where I know a lot of my friends over here would be horrified and wouldn't know what to say or do, but I move equally comfortable in both groups. And then with being kind of half black, as my husband likes to say, you're half black, I don't moisturise. He's like, you're only half white, love. You're supposed to moisturise. So I, he does it all the time, I don't. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it, being sort of spanning both, being brown, means that I've got that kind of vision into both. And I've had, I, I know people aren't going to lie, I've had equally horrific racism from both sides. One thing they can agree on is that I'm not right. So what I... Ca I know, I know, I know. This is only, that goes out to the racists, not yeah, to the regular people. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to not I, I know, I know. But it's this thing of, I know 
that I am in a position because I'm educated and because I'm articulate and because I am a force of nature and I, you know, I'm intelligent. I know my stuff. I know that I get a certain amount of privilege because of that. And it kind of jars with the being brown and female, which is, well, pound shop Beyonce, as I like to describe myself. But, you know, which I know is, is something people notice when I go in a room. So and oh. it was it came out when George Floyd was murdered. I have a, I have a couple of friends in the US. I sent a message to one saying, oh, my God, what is going on over there? Are you OK? He's a white guy. But I'm like, what, are you OK? And he misunderstood. And he sent a message back going, yes, you should definitely talk about this. And I was like, really? what? I am not. Are you mad? I am saying no, no way. If I can't start talking about race because I don't have white privilege, but I do have white adjacent privilege and I'm hanging on to it. Thank you very much. There's no way I'm no way I'm giving that up. And, and didn't someone say to you, there's no such thing as white oh, yeah. adjacent Somebody privilege? Said, that's, that's, not a, that's a made up thing, white adjacent privilege. I'm like, live my life, love. You'll soon change your mind. You know, big, big, and it was driven by fear. Like, I'm so afraid. I'm uncomfortable now, but I was afraid of bringing it up like the first time someone asked me to talk about diversity this is, is I thought they meant the dance group I don't mean to be honest I when you just said that yes. and I'm like that's rude I mean just because I'm brown doesn't mean I know Ashley Banjo I mean I do know Ashley Banjo but that's beside the point and, and I genuinely was like you want me to talk about being brown are you mad no way it's gonna upset people but then I realized that my friends who weren't brown were also scared so we're all being driven by fear so what if we met and had a courageous conversation and we gifted each other 30 minutes of our time to ask questions without judgment? What would that look like? So that's that's what I did. Because I think, actually, I, I was at the society when George Floyd, terrible um, murder, and I was doing these things called global conversations. And it was actually my last one before I was leaving. And we'd agreed all the topics and race wasn't one of them. Mm. And I remember feeling incredibly uncomfortable because I felt... I, I, I'm not equipped to have this conversation. Oh, that's a, that's a gold standard point. Right. And, but there's no way I can have a global conversation about the topics that are going mm. on right now mm. with a whole bunch of amazing marketeers if we don't talk about yeah. race. So I actually started by saying, I'm not equipped to have this conversation, but this is about creating a safe space and admitting we don't mm. know what mm. it's like and we can't possibly actually and one by one people said that's exact I was so scared yeah, about talking yeah, about yeah. this but actually yeah. I'm admitting I don't know and actually what I want to do is equip myself now yeah do you know what you said I wrote down in the two weeks after George Floyd's death I wrote down everything people said to me and then I picked the like top 10 ones and I put them on a line and I show this line when I'm doing like well people call it diversity I call it belonging but when I'm doing that stuff and I say, right, here, let's, let's do it about race. It could be about LGBTQ. It could be about, you know, ability, disability. Let's do it about race. Here's the Ku Klux Klan on this side, right? And here's like Nelson Mandela on the other side. Where are you? And I get everyone to sort of say where they are. Oh, so, wow. Oh, kind of there. And there's three sections. And then I show them the line. And the line is everything everyone said. And it starts with, and it's not right at the end, just in a bit from the end. It starts with people who are different to me are not as good as me. Like people who are, you know, women, female, whatever, aren't as good as me. And then the next one is there's no discrimination in our community. And then the, and it's slightly better. And the slightly better one than that is there's no prejudice in our community. It's like the, there's discrimination in every community. We can't help it. We're humans. So but there's no one's doing it on purpose. There's no prejudice. Mm, you know, what does purpose mean? And then the next one is I'm not prejudiced, you know, because it's people get it feels very personal very quickly. Then the next one is good gravy. I'm a nice person. 
Because it's like, why am I... And I really feel for that. I really feel for like white male CEOs told, go and sort your organisation out. And they're like, oh my God, what? How do... What? I don't want to get it wrong, but good Lord. And then it goes to, I believe in equality, which is literally in the middle. You're as far away from the Ku Klux Klan as you are from Nelson Mandela if you believe in equality. And then it's like, I'm scared, but I'm prepared to engage in the conversation, you know? And, and then it's like, I'm happy I'm happy to engage but I'll look at my own bias and then it goes all the way through up to like allyship and stuff and and one of them is I'm not equipped to talk about this and I think that was the barrier for fear I'm not flipping equipped what you think you get a manual when you're born yeah you know, this is how you talk about I have to talk to my kids when they go to secondary school I have to talk to them about being brown I have to tell my kids when they start going out this is what you do when you get stopped by the police not if you get stopped by the police but when because we all have been I've been arrested for something that I you know wasn't even me but I was there and I was in the wrong place and I look like I might be guilty so I have to have these and conversations and you look like you might be guilty because in your mind because of your caramel yeah there, well there was like four white women and me and I was arrested and the others weren't. So I, I'm sure, you Honestly, know. I'm getting cross. I, 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 well, it, no, but look, cross doesn't change anything. I know, it I know. It does it. I, I, wanna, I want change more than I want to be right. I want to be right a lot, but I want change more. And that means you've got to meet people where they are mm. rather than just shouting at them and having an argument. Shouting at either of them is not making anything any better. In fact, if you were in my class uh, in reception and you were behaving like that, you wouldn't be on the sticky table on Thursday, I could tell you that much. So we've actually got to find a way of meeting each other where we are, even when we diametrically are opposed to what people think and feel. That's why I think it's about creating safe spaces to have uncomfortable conversations about things that matter. But when you can create that space where people feel they can be themselves and they're not going to be judged. So, But is that a safe space for perpetrators as well I mean obviously I can't know who's in the room but I but there are going to be people in the room who have hurt others there are going to be people who hold views but that's where hopefully by sitting in that room and listening to stories and listening to how it's impacted them hopefully that will get them to at least think about what they're hearing remember we did one on on feedback yes feedback's a gift until it's not Mm. (laughs) (laughs) which is most of the time (laughs) and I shared my personal story which is that when I was chief exec someone said anonymously I might add she doesn't seem serious enough to be Mm. a chief executive Mm. which um at the beginning really really affected me Mm. and then I realized through being around amazing people like you Unless that person is trying to help me get better or challenge, you know, or or cares, then yeah. quite frankly, that feedback can go in the feedback mm. furnace. Yes. And do you remember one by one people yeah. got up and shared things like I was told I would never write and I'm now chief copywriter for yeah. Ogilvy or yeah. whichever agency it was. And it was unbelievable the amount of people that stood up and someone had said something to them that had seriously impacted mm. them and not thought about what they were doing. So I think if we can create those spaces to have these conversations and it, and it impacts any one person in a positive way, it's worth doing. I think you're right. And, and the, it's the community aspect. It's back to belonging all the yeah. time because everybody thinks it's just me. I'm the only one. It's my, you know, it's my story. But actually, I, like I say, there are four stories happening at any time in your life. One is the story that you tell others about you, and that's the stuff we're comfortable talking about. The second one is the story that others tell about us, and that is none of our business. It's not our story. We can't affect it. I mean, we can be nice, but other people are going to have their own influences. And the story my kids tell about me 
is not true. I'm just going to put that out there now. So <laughs> when I was teaching... Your kids are very lovely They are you. lovely. When I was teaching, I used to say to the parents, they're going to tell you stories about me and they're going to tell me stories about you and let's all agree the truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so, But then the third story is the story you tell yourself. And that's the story, you know, where you're telling yourself you're fat, you're ugly, and you're going grey and you shouldn't say anything and you're not very good at this. That Really horrible stuff that we reserve for ourselves and we don't share with others. And then the fourth story is a story that you haven't started writing yet. And that's the most exciting one because you can change that. You can, like Trinity, I remember she said when she was 12, I was doing this open table thing at home. Honestly, my ideas. We're all going to have an open conversation with the children because I'm so cool. And uh, <laughs> she, she said, I said, what habit of your parents would you like to do when you grow up? She said, I know one I wouldn't like to do. And I'm like, I can't think what that is, but go on. She said, when I grow up, she's 12, I would like to have a job where I could come home and just be present with the people I love. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, knife oh. to the neck. And I want, the rules of open table present. are She actually said present. present. I wouldn't have even present. known that. I know, I, I'm, I had to look it up then. <laughs> but it's just this, this thing of like, I, the rules of open table are you can't, there's no judgment, so I can't judge her and I can't judge myself. So all I can say is tell me more. And she says, look, you love your job, but you know, sometimes you, you're on your laptop and you're saying yes, but you're not even looking at us. And sometimes you've got a way of saying yes, where it's, I've, I know you're talking, but I don't, I don't know what you said. I'm just telling you yes, so you'll stop talking and I can carry on. And it was like, oh my gosh. And then I, I can, I've got the 2G choice here, guilt or gratitude. Guilt is easy. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible person. Gratitude is, how great is it to get this feedback in chapter 12 in Parenting Trinity? And I, chapter 13 can be different. So it's that thing of being able to, that's the, your story about me, but I'm choosing to write a different one. I um I really resonate with that actually because I as you know I've got um Joshy my beautiful seven year old and the amount of time he says to me mummy no phones mummy no phones and he'll take my phone off me and throw it across across the room and I always think oh I'm busy I'm writing an email or you know and actually it's like no that can wait because this is time with my son and that's the most precious thing that you're never going to get back you, and yeah that is that because mine are older than yours and I sort of yeah. I miss the babies although yeah. it was relentless and horrible at the time I'm just going to go back to when we were obviously talking about about race mm. but if anyone's listening and thinking gosh that's me why is it important that they get uncomfortable about race yeah we we always talk about getting comfortable with discomfort don't we and it's not it's not so much that it's important. It's, it's, you've got to make a choice about how you want to be. You know, like the number one regret of the dying, Bronnie Ware wrote a book and she captured on this palliative care ward regrets that people had, all different ages, gender, races. And the number one regret was, I wish I'd had the courage to be myself. And that's equally joyful and heartbreaking. And to me, if that's what people who are wisely at the end of their life wishing, then we should do a pre-mortem on that and take it on board now. So if I had the courage to be myself, what would I say? What would I do? What would I think? What would I feel? Would I stay in this toxic relationship? Would I stand by watching someone be sexually or racially harassed? Would I get out of the way when something happens on the tube because I don't want to get involved? Would I not speak up at work when I see something that is tantamount to bullying? No, I wouldn't do any of those things. If I had the courage to be myself, I would find a way. I would make mistakes. I would reframe and I would go again. And so it's, it's a choice but what I know is, and what I can say, is that I also find it difficult. There are lots of times I wouldn't stand by and watch harassment. I can't. I, I'm designed for trouble, so I, I have to get involved in things. But I find it difficult. And, to be, and I tell you, tell you the thing is, I can be friends with people for years, years. 
And we never mention being brown. Because I, I even struggle with the word race because I'm like, I don't even know what race I am. I mean, I was born here. I live here. Sorry about the inconvenience of not looking British, but I, you know, I, well, especially with those forms that says other. Please yeah, specify. I don't know I mean, what you want from me. Crap, well, I think frankly. they just want to know that I'm brown. That's why. Well, yeah, but we should write forms better, and I think we do now. But well, there, um, well, now there's a myriad of choices, and it's still I am still ticking the other box to be honest, because it's like I want I have this thing about you got to be honest, and I don't know who my dad is. I did one of those DNA tests, and it says. Da, 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 I'm from Africa. Well, no shit. I mean, yes, thank you for that information, but could you be more specific? I'm not interested in ancestry. I want to know my actual biological dad. Where did he come from so that I can, you know, my kids say they're half Ghanaian and half Nottingham because that's where I was born. So, you know, even, even that race thing. And the thing is, the thing about getting uncomfortable in this conversation is it's a gift because I'm dealing with so much stuff and my kids are on a daily basis that the fact that you're willing to have a courageous conversation, not a difficult one, a courageous one, is such a gift. And, and when I, you know, I told you about that, there was a guy in, I was in New York and I was checking out in a lobby and there's a guy in a wheelchair, using a wheelchair, trying to get through these revolving doors. And I'm checking out with a big group and I'm like, oh, I will help the man because I am super cool. So I start walking over this massive lobby and I get halfway and I think, oh no, he's going to think, He's going to think I can't. He's going to think I think he's helpless. Oh, no, that's awful. And I, But I look back and everyone's looking at me. So they think I'm like, oh, no, I'm stuck. So I'm like, what am I going to do? So I try and style it. So I go to the guy, go to the door and I'm like, and he's by now he's stopped because he's stuck and he's wheeled out. So I go out the side and I go, mate, mate, I don't have many friends who use wheelchairs, right? So if I see someone using a wheelchair, trying to get through a revolving door, what is the right thing to do? Do I help them or do I not help them? Which one is right? And he looked at me and he went, wow. Thanks for asking. And then he wheeled off. Oh, I love that. And I'm like, mate, wait, what do I do? Because <laughs> I was wanting yeah. But it's that thing of thanks for asking. Yeah. It's you're, like amazing. You, yeah, you're reminding me of um, mine and Sophie's, uh, mm. Sophie Morgan, who was uh, amazing our interview. first yeah. guest. I love her. She's amazing. But actually what, what she talked about in terms of, you know, it infuriates her when she's going along the street and mums move their children out the way. <laughs> You know, if there's yeah. one thing that's resonated from that episode, it's that. Because the amount yeah. of people that have said to me afterwards, including my own mum, mm. that made me feel uncomfortable mm. recognising my own behaviours yeah. in what she said. Because people aren't meaning to be rude or ignorant. They just don't know what to do. But that's fine. But that's that's what they should do. Exactly. I don't know what to do right here. Like, I've done it. I've sat down with my friends who are Muslim and I've said, tell me what the names are of the scarves you put on your head. I don't know the difference. Tell me. Could you gift me that? I love that because how would we know? How do to I your know? Point, we're I not giving a manual. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where is this book that everybody is given apart from me? And so I am put in a, I am put in difficult positions or made or othered often. It's gone in the day. Well, not gone in the days. It happened during Brexit. But being shouted at in the street, people shouting the N word at me. You know, my nan used to make me walk behind her because of the gyps she'd get from being with a brown girl. All of that. Oh. I, I, I fancy a bit of black, you know, people's dressing, chatting me up and stuff. People assuming I'm taking drugs all the time because I'm black and I'm dancing. So I must be doing that. The mammoth amount of crap that you get just from walking down the street. Like Trinity now, she's 19. She says to me, I have not been out yet without being accosted or grabbed. And that's in the day on the bus to uni. She has not been because she's tall and thin and beautiful and brown and good. And people say it's just because she's attractive. Like, yeah, OK, let's say that. But I, I, th things don't change. Things have not changed. And I'm still saying to my daughter the same things that I you know, people would say to me. And I'm like, that's not good enough. I'm saying to her, I've done nothing in the years I've had to improve the way we are as a planet so that you can go out as yourself. 
So I'm not going to say to her, don't wear that skirt, don't do that. I'm going to say, no, let's, let's, you tell me what other, what things need to change? What have we forgotten as adults that we need to change? And, and that is an uncomfortable conversation with my 19 yeah. year old daughter, but I care enough to get uncomfortable. And, and I can tell you if the, when people do speak up, when I am, someone says something about being black, like some, you know, all sorts of stupid things people say to me. And when someone else just really endearingly questions it, it's amazing. When one person says something and like six other people are standing around and they say nothing, that's like being in a hospital with one of those gowns on with your bum hanging out and being on a ventilator and being powerless and trying to speak, but you can't. That, that's what it feels like. So it's not important if you don't want to live a full fat life that you speak up and get uncomfortable, but it is important if you don't want to regret not being brave enough to be yourself. I, I, I literally am a bit speechless by what you just said there. I'm, I need to move on to another uncomfortable moment that I witnessed from stalking you and uh, <laughs> <Stalking>. <laughs> The Apprentice. Oh, tell oh. us, tell us what, what happened. What happened? Well, it was a huge success if being a huge <laughs> success is being fired in the first week. <laughs> Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, you fool. So I got, because, because I have this great idea and it was to do with being in foster care, that when you're moved from school to school, you start again and no one knows who you are, no one knows what you can do. Wouldn't it be great if there was like your records or your literacy level was at home as well as at school so it could be traced as you move around so that was my and I thought wouldn't that be great as an idea you know virtual schools weren't were just coming into existence that they do that now but that was not there then and go big or go home you know and Lord Sugar's like who is going to be in charge I'm like I am because and, and you know <laughs> in what, the first week in the first week and you know what I would do it again now that's how liable I am I am a liability volunteer so I was team leader and we had to sell lucky Chinese cats which I still have quite a few of, if Those anyone. Those ones that... Yes. Yeah. Reasonable prices. See me. DM me. They're in my garage. <laughs> can I Can I have one? You it's can have friend. one. No, you can have 584. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have one. They come as a group now. <laughs> I bought one for Joshy. I really quite Did like them. <laughs> yeah, they give me nightmares now, unfortunately. So they're no longer Meow. my favourite. <laughs> People keep buying them for me and it's just not funny anymore. Just putting it out there. So I, we, we didn't sell. We were like £56 less than the boys. So we were, you know, we lost. And then we went in to do the whole bun fight of who's going to go home. And uh, and I was I was fired. So, and I remember, this is, all right, this is embarrassing. So, oh, shame. So I said to the producer, who was absolutely lovely, I said to the producer, um, if I gave you £100, could you not show this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Think about how much it, I know. Think about how much it must cost to She's like, yeah, that wouldn't cut it. It's going to go out. And, and I came home and I, I I wrote all these letters to my kids and I told them I was going to be away and I put photos in and my husband and all got in. And then I was back in a week and it was, it was just so bad. And I actually went away for a week after that because I was so embarrassed. And then I'm like, how am I going to, I can't style this. It, everyone's going to know because there's a time lag, there's a few months. So as it was coming up, um, you're not allowed to tell anyone and we know that it's coming up and we know that it's about to hit the press and your photo's going to be everywhere and I'm going to be like super Z-list reality TV star famous for 10 minutes and I'm dreading it. And then in that in that week is when my brother takes a heroin overdose oh. and dies like the day before the press comes out. So, you know, and I'm estranged from my family at this time, from my brothers and my sister. So I'm getting calls from them like at half 11 at night and I'm like, what's... They've seen that I'm going to be, it must have leaked. They've seen I'm going to be on the telly. And um, and it wasn't. It was saying that he'd, 
died. And my brother wasn't a heroin addict, you know. He was like, heroin's expensive. <laughs> so he he was he had a job. He worked in a call centre. He had a son. He was, but if there's one thing that that removes the story that you have about yourself, if there's one thing that for, you forget to be human, you know, it's it's that type of drug. So so I was so I had to I contacted them and said I can't do anything this week. My brother is. I can't do anything. And they were fantastic. The BBC was amazing. They were like, it's fine. We've got you. I was lined up for interviews. You're fired, all that. They moved everything. And I went through this, this, yeah, the worst week of my life, really. Oh, navigating yes. chaos. And and then when that, so that that was an interesting side to it, but no one saw that. What they saw is, oh, jazz with lucky cats and getting fired. And, and I had to embrace that because it was the thing everyone knew about me. So I had to embrace that failure. And it wasn't until later when I thought, Actually, you know, everyone's like saying, I, I know, I know how to survive, not just survive, thrive, not just thrive, be truly alive, not just be truly alive, actually drive change. But I'm not telling anyone because I'm too worried of what people will think about my X Factor backstory. So what if I told the truth? And I started doing a little bit in talks where I was, and it just trended. It trended on Twitter for the second time. The first time was when I got fired. That was miserable. But the second time, and then I got a book deal, then I got a TEDx talk. And in that talk, I, the woman who was, said you know you, you should cry. talk about your brother and your, and I'm like good gravy no that would be I might as well strip naked talking about my past like that but I did and it has it's re it resonates with people it it's an it's an incredible TED talk yeah. and actually give give that and and your book a plug um but <laughs> if you haven't already listened to Jazz's TED talk I would hugely recommend it it made it made me cry so Jazz why do you think it's important to get uncomfortable and particularly for brands and leaders, why it's important to get uncomfortable. The uncomfortable nature, in my experience of doing that, is every time you do a tiny step towards discomfort, it, it's like floodgates. It releases so many other people. And if you want to, for brands, you know, if you want to cause change, build communities, connect, invite people into being 10% braver, then go first. Go for, like John Lewis's Christmas ad with foster care. You know, they've got this endless budget. They can do all this stuff. And it's a girl who's in foster care. How, how impactful is that? Think about every single kid who, and I've done this, who is not going to be anywhere nice at Christmas. Think about those kids who sit in the group homes thinking maybe, maybe this year. Think about the people who've grown up and have that story but can't share it or haven't shared it yet. And then see that and think, and then it starts to, their mates start talking about it in the pub. I mean, there are so many stories of overcoming adversity alongside so many people going through adversity and feeling that there's no way out. Every time you meet someone where they are, every time you go first, every time you, you get uncomfortable and say, look, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know if anyone's said this before. I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but I'm, I care enough to try who's with me. Every time you do that, you literally light fires in people. You, you cause the change that you want to see. And it's it's so much more engaging and, and enrolling than trying to sell someone something by telling them a story. I mean, you know, I do I do think that I'm a phenomenal human female. Evidence you and are. data. It's not even my opinion. It's like even when I don't think that, it's still true. But Your that is evidence pot is overflowing. Over, I've got a bigger one. I've got a bigger <laughs> one. <laughs> but that has happened because other people have taken a risk, made mistakes, fought the fear, met me where I am, and gone first in vulnerability. It wouldn't have happened without that. So it's important because you are literally growing future leaders. You are literally liberating people and liberating yourself at the same time. 
this is the first time I've talked about race and I don't have a vulnerability hangover. You know, I talked about that. And yes, I, I was dreading, me so dreading much. kind of like, what do I do after? But actually, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel scared. That's new. You shouldn't. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jazz. It really has. I've truly loved this conversation. It's been fun. I, I think it's it's gone from from tears to laughter. But that that is what you do, and you it's my do MO, girl. You, you, you do it brilliantly, and you've done it many times to me. So um, so thank you, and I think that's a a perfect note to end on. I'm Gemma Greaves, and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production. The producers are the wonderful Izzy Clark and lovely Clara Kavanagh. We are new on the scene, very new. So if you enjoy this podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us, rate us. A nice rating would be brilliant, thank you. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests, just like Jazz. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with amazing people like today. Thank you so much. (laughs) 